Welcome to Icons in the Making. I'm your host, Heather Stern, CMO at Lippincott, the creative consultancy behind some of the world's best brands. Join me as I sit down with the leaders of today's most influential brands. You'll hear stories of transformation and walk away with a new perspective on what it means to be an icon. This is Icons in the Making. Heritage of Pride, a nonprofit born from the events of the Stonewall Uprising, has cemented itself as the foremost LGBTQIA pride organization over the last 30 years. The organizer of the iconic NYC Pride March, the rally, and other marquee events, NYC Pride creates powerful experiences that unite the community in activism, in protest, in celebration, and in advocacy. Today, I am so honored to be speaking with Andre Thomas, co-chair of the organization. Andre has an incredibly rich and impressive background. He was born in the Caribbean, is a decorated United States Marine Corps veteran. He studied neurobiology at Yale and is the first African-American male elected as co-chair of NYC Pride. Andre said that there are no questions that are off limits. So I am excited to dive in and welcome you to Icons in the Making. Hi, Andre. Happy Pride Month. Thank you so much for having me, Heather. Absolutely. I'm so thrilled. And there's so many places that I want to dive into and get your perspectives on. But I thought I would start with a story that you share with me, and I would love for you to share with listeners. And it was your first exposure to Pride. And it was the parade that was being played on the CBS Evening News. Describe that for us and how that had a lasting impression on you. Sure. So, you know, as a kid, I immigrated to Miami from Trinidad. And then every evening we'd watch the evening news with Dan Rather and CBS. And I remember just sitting there and then seeing the news come on and saying, New York City holds its annual gay pie parade. And for just a moment, just being like, wait, that's me but not necessarily even having the words or the courage or the ability to identify what that was, but being like, hey, this is resonating with me in some way. I don't know what that is, but that's me somehow. And I remember feeling guilt because that's what I'm not supposed to be. That's what I've been warned about sometimes or seen is not really a good thing, but feeling that thing that I just saw in the news for like 30 seconds is I think I'm a part of that. I think I was probably seven or eight back then. This is why visibility is important because there's a young kid somewhere who may see an LGBT person on TV, on the internet. That may be the first exposure to that identity and them being able to connect with that can give them the courage to really face who they really are. People always say, when did you know? I think this was the first time I saw it on TV. And this was the first time that I knew that, oh, wait, there's something on TV that shows that's me and identifies with this feeling of difference that I always kind of knew was there, but didn't necessarily have the framework put around it too. And I think that's really part of that, you know, beginning journey for me. So seven-year-old Andre is sitting watching the television. What image, what feeling was conveyed that allowed you to identify with it? Of course, I'm used to seeing parades, Macy's, the Thanksgiving Day Parade all the time, but then seeing people who were of the same sex 
celebrating with each other in a joyous way that didn't have a negative connotation because it was still in the, the height of the AIDS crisis. Seeing that kind of joy, that really was like, oh, wait, maybe it might be okay to be this thing that I think I'm, I am, but I'm not supposed to be, that I'm still trying to figure out. But it might be okay because there seems to be other people out there who are thriving, surviving, enjoying them, their lives with the same kind of thing that I am. And maybe one day I could be there <laughs> and, and get to experience it. And looking now, like, oh my God, now I'm the person in charge of it, <laughs> which is not even just a full circle. It feels destined in some way, but also it's a culmination of a lot of different experiences that I've been through in my life that has allowed me to kind of bring me to where I'm at today. And I mentioned in the introduction, what an impressive and varied background you have and can only imagine the stories behind each of those experiences. Tell me about your experience prior to NYC Pride and what inspired you to join and how you've taken some of those experiences and applied them to the role. Part of my issue is that I have trouble saying no. <laughs> so it's always been, oh, I'll join. I started doing a lot of theater as a kid. So I have a big production background experience. I was a head of operations for the Yale Dramatic Association, which is like the second oldest college theater association. And did eight years in the Marines. And that really gave me a lot of challenges in a way that I'd never seen for myself. And then going through life, going through college, going through the military, but also still feeling that there was still more that I can do or that I can give. And I was always raised by my parents, my grandparents, to have a real desire to be of service, to always know that I may have unique abilities and skills that I should use to help others. And for a while, like I worked in clinical research, but then when I you know, moved to DC, I missed being able to be creative and applying all the lessons I'd learned working in theater throughout my life and started volunteering with DC Pride and ended up running Sunset Dance Party. It's a big dance party in front of the Capitol at the end of Pride in DC. And then my career, my day job continued and I moved to New York. And then I just kind of showed up at a meeting <laughs> of Heritage of Pride and then became the volunteer captain for Pride Fest, which is the largest LGBTQA plus street festival in the world. And then I was elected to become the Pride Island director, and Pride Island is our large dance party. We internally call it a, a dance in protest because it, it was illegal for many, many years for the LGBT community to dance in public together. And then I got elected to do the position of co-chair pretty much right in the middle of the pandemic. So been really kind of holding down the fort with my other co-chair in the past couple of years and really excited to bring back Pride this year in, in the first real live Pride since 2019. So that's something that we're really looking forward to and excited about. And certainly had your work cut out for you as on all of this was taking place throughout the pandemic on top of so many historic moments in our own society and trying to grapple with those and, and to have a voice around those. So let's talk about Pride Month. This year's theme is unapologetically us. Tell me about the inspiration for the concept. Tell me what you are most excited and hopeful for. And tell me if you have any fears going into the month. 
Sure. We decide our themes in December. And this year, Unapologetically Us, it really encapsulates what's going on right now in the world. There are more anti-LGBT bills that have been passing or being proposed in state legislatures than they ever have been before. I think at the last count that I saw in April was at least 300 bills that are anti-LGBT. And about, I'd say a good half of those are targeting the trans community and specifically trans kids. And so we are even more under attack than we've ever been before in different ways. Our theme, you know, shows that we have to stand up and be us because if we don't, then those attacks are just going to keep coming and they're not just coming from the right, unfortunately, they're even coming from sometimes the left. People who think we may have gone too far, they say we might be be too woke. There's a lot of people that you would think would be allies. There's always issues when you hear about comedians, for example, who are targeting the trans community. The theme shows that we need to keep standing up for who we are and being proud of who we are and showing who we are and not necessarily apologizing for who we are. And so we have a lot of anticipation for being live and in person, but we're still in the middle of a pandemic. So there's still a lot of fear that goes around it. We're still being very cognizant of how we can be safe and protect our community in the ways that we need to, but also people are missing that connection. The LGBT community for many years had to center themselves around these events. Their bars, their social gatherings too, because those were the only places they could be themselves, not have to apologize and be out and open. We've been able to achieve a lot of things and blend in more into society. But with a lot of these attacks, we know we still have to have moments like pride to show the world you know, who we are. I really have a lot of empathy for the position that you're in and in trying to be the voice of a community and raise it up, but also know that you are not going to always make everybody happy. You had made some tough decisions, particularly as it relates to uniformed police officers marching in the events. There was some backlash. Tell me about that experience and tell me about what you've learned standing behind your convictions, even if it doesn't please everybody. The one thing you definitely learn, especially writing events, is not everybody's going to be happy. It shows us the importance of not just education, but re-education. People forgot that the pride movement began with the Stonewall riots, which wasn't standing up against police brutality. The relationship between our community and the police has evolved in many years, and there's been progress that's been made. But part of our decision is highlighting that there are still communities that are still facing those attacks. In New York, for example, there was a law called the Walking Wild Trans Law that allowed officers to basically harass or arrest any person who was trans if they weren't wearing the clothing that the officer felt they should be. And that was only repealed in February of last year. Wow. So people don't realize we're still on the books. Part of our response actually happened because there were peaceful protests during Pride in 2020, and there were peaceful protests in Washington Square Park here in New York, and there were some very aggressive actions that the NYPD had taken toward those protesters. And our community said to us, what are you doing? How can you just sit back and not say anything and not respond? 
But I want to make it clear that our, our ban was on uniformed police officers. I think that's important because it isn't a rejection of the individual, sure. but specifically the institution, which is not the same thing. Sure. And you know, we, we gave the NYPD, um, the Gay Officers Action League, the option of marching out of uniform. And that was something that they said they didn't want to exercise. They wanted to be in uniform and they sued to, to win that right back in the 80s and they won that too. But for us, is the uniform their identity or is them being a member of the community their real identity? I can't change the color of my skin. I can't change my sexuality. I know the value of a uniform. I wore a uniform for eight years. I know how to take it off and what parts of that still stay with me or not. And we're saying you can take off your uniform and be like every other person and other uh, law enforcement agencies who are in the parade. You can be like everybody else and participate in a celebration of love and acceptance. And, you know, we're not the only pride organization that has made these steps. Toronto did this also in San Francisco, it's down at San Diego. Um, lots of other local prides are coming out too. And we've also seen that there are pride organizations who haven't been responsive to the communities and now are no longer there. Boston and Philly prides no longer exist because they did make these changes that were responsive to the, the outcry from the community. And so it was definitely surprising that a lot of the backlash that we faced was from gay white men. They're the ones who have really gained most of the benefits of a lot of the rights we've won and it, it amplifies the fact that there are others in the community who have been left behind by pride movements, by the rights that we've won. The trans community, people of color, do not share the same level of power and privilege that gay white men do. It kind of really showed where the work needs to be done. It's a commitment we've made to the work. We always say we have an open door policy towards anyone who wants to come to us and talk about how they can work in hand in hand in doing this work of really uplifting everyone. We don't want special treatment. We want to be treated just the same. And so that's what we're really, you know, really aiming to do. Thank you for those words and comments. And as you said, some of this is around redefining, re-educating for the good of rising, all of us, especially those that are most marginalized. Let's pivot a little bit because this is a month where a lot of businesses and brands really embrace the community, want to celebrate and take part of it. You have an incredible roster of sponsors, some of which who have been with you, even through the ups and downs that you've just described. There is also some talk about brands being disingenuous and June comes around mm -hmm. and social media avatars become pride flags. Tell me your perspective on the role that businesses and brands need to be playing, not just this month, but really throughout the year. I've seen this with my own day job you know, turning your brand logo into a rainbow flag, but are you also providing partner benefits? It comes down to the practical things that affects people's day-to-day -day lives. The brands that we align with are brands that are doing the work with us too. They may show up at the march and have a contingent there and a, and a float, but we're also working with them throughout the year and giving them advice and support feedback and holding them accountable when some of these brands make missteps. And I think it is 
good for us to be able to engage with them and say, hey, you want to be able to cater to our community, but this is where you aren't in alignment with our values. And if we're going to be able to continue this relationship, then we're going to have to work with you to make those steps. I think people have a nose for brands that are not authentic and they can really see when a brand is not living up to their own values. We have an initiative we call Pride 365, looking at not just what happens during June, but how can we engage our partners in all the things that we're doing all throughout the year. I remember my company, for example, was like, hey, we can put you on a LinkedIn post as a member of our org. I was like, wait, wait, wait we don't have X, 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 X. And I was like, so you can't use my picture if, until we do this. And so it goes part and parcel in being authentic in being true to the values because all corporations have their own missions and have their own values that they want to try to uphold. And we want to help them in making sure they're also living up to those. I think right now there is so much talk about the war for talent and how challenging it is to find well-rounded, diverse candidates to be attracted to join an organization and then to feel like they want to stay. So I think the work that you're doing is, is really important there. There's a lot of talk about boards and the representation of different backgrounds on corporate boards. I know that New York City Pride's executive board is now the most diverse in the organization's history, but you've said there is still work to be done. Tell me about how the board has been architected and where you see the challenges in continuing to show that representation, both for your organization and more broadly. It really starts in what pipeline is there to be able to give people access to these upper tiers of management of these types of organizations. You've seen these changes in many of these LGBT charities themselves too, who have not had diverse representation and then what they prioritize how it changes or when that representation is actually more diverse. So you can see that for us, it's taking a look at structurally, how do we create methods for people? I think the pandemic really taught us a lot about accessibility and how we make everything accessible to anyone because we were structured so that you had to be in person at a meeting for this many hours in order to be able to become a member and then serve this much time XXX in order to be elected and then being able to actually get to our physical locations with access on a regular basis to that takes someone who has free time on their hands, money to be able to travel <laughs> back and forth throughout the city. You know, and that already sets a limitation to people who are in outer boroughs, people who don't have the funds to be able to access transportation. So taking a look at how do we build our membership, which feeds into our board, our, our board, like you said, is, is the most diverse it's been, but our organization still does not have enough trans representation as much as we would like. And so how do we highlight those voices in our events? Because we don't have the representation, diversity, accessibility, and inclusion committee wasn't an actual committee with voting rights until last year. <laughs> and so if you think about that, that seems like it's like, <laughs> that, that's an obvious fix. But these are things that were, were structurally in place that prevented 
a lot of those changes from happening too. It, it takes a lot of slow work to make some of these changes happen. But just once you kind of identify these pain points that are like, why is it that the same people are always in the same positions of power? And how do we change that too? Once you can identify that and work to change those things too, then you can start to see the real changes happen. Well, it's great that you are making that progress. And as you said, the work isn't done. You talk a little bit about your partners. Lippincott is a proud partner for NYC Pride. And we worked together to develop and introduce a new identity for an organization that is all about being a place where people can embrace their truth. Tell me what the new identity means to you and how it's helping further your vision and your goals for growth. Everyone has been taking a hard look in the mirror and seeing who are we, who do we want to be, and how do we represent that visually? How do we represent that in our core mission? How do we represent that to all the different voices who have opinions? Working with you all and being able to get feedback for how people see us was a critique that, you know, I think we kind of knew some of the parts that were there, but seeing it, I was like, okay, some of these things are painful to hear but necessary for us to be able to think about where do you want to be as an organization 10 years from now? And I think for us, working on this new identity shows us how we are attempting to be more of everything to everybody. We know that, you know, our community is multifaceted, is growing. It represents so much more to so many people. And we know we need to be able to be flexible with it to allow for growth. I know that the things that weren't acceptable 10 years ago are now norms. And so we need to be able to really have an identity and a branding that allows us to move along with that to show that hopefully in 10 years, we won't be having these trans rights issues. Hopefully we'll have moved on from those. That's my hope. And I think being able to have the tools to identify and hone in and be flexible about that too were things we didn't have before. We hadn't thought about ourselves as a brand in that way. It really forced those among us who were working on it to really take a look and figure out how does this live past our tenure here? To how does this live for the, the kids who are in high school or in college now who haven't had full life pride. And so how does this live for them? Because they're going to be the ones who have to pick up the mantle and keep the movement going. Yeah, it was an amazing partnership. And I think seeing the results, I know we were so proud and honored to, to play that role and building within the design strategy, the notion of inclusivity in that the gradient within the flag is ever-changing and ever-evolving and can be used to represent a lot of different subgroups and contingencies. I'm curious, what broadly has the reaction been? Has it achieved the platform that you're hoping it would achieve? I think one of our volunteers, when we saw the, the new logo and how the flag also has the hidden NYC in it too. The, the phrase he came up with was surprise and delight because it's not in your face, but when you realize it's there, it's, oh, wait, the flag is such an iconic symbol for us. 
Also, we need to capture part of it being New York. How do you do that? And how do you, how are you flexible with that? Right after we revealed the new logo was when the Ukraine crisis happened. And we immediately were able to flex the logo into you know, branding with those colors. And we have a program called Pride Gets Back and that we partner with and we give grants to local organizations who are doing small grassroots work. And one of them is an organization for people who are Russian speaking and LGBTQ and is headed by a Ukrainian lesbian. And her being able to see our pride flag logo in Ukrainian colors and just identifying with that too is so meaningful to someone like her because she sees that, you know, a community that is really in very many, it is very homophobic, but now she has that representation kind of symbol to use. And, and I think it's the use cases of it too that we see and knowing that it's going to evolve and grow throughout time is really exciting for us too. And being able to play within and and, and show it on a billboard <laughs> on the way to the airport, I was just kind of like, that's us. It really identifies us in a way that we hadn't really done before. There's nothing like the symbol really being up there for millions of people to see and, and to connect with in their own way. I mean, that's the goal to build meaning into what these identities are and, and mean to people. One of the questions I like to close with is more of a personal question, and it's the acknowledgement that this is about icons in the making and NYC and NYC Pride and you all are iconic in your own ways. Do you have an icon? And if so, tell me about someone in your life or someone that is a public figure that you look to as an icon. I think it's really very personal for me. My grandmother, my mother's side has always been my icon. She raised 13 kids and <laughs> nine girls <laughs> had twins twice, of which my mother is one. She's no longer with us too, but she was one of the first people who knew about me, took me aside and said, I love you no matter what. She knew before my parents, before anybody, I was sitting at her feet watching that CBS evening news. She taught me a lot. She was a wedding dress designer. So I kind of learned a lot of my creativity from her, but also just perseverance and drive and passion, but also taking care of people because that's what she always did. And that's really how I learned how to take care of people, how to look out for other people. And that's really for me where it all started. Thank you so much, Andre, for your honesty and your openness and for all of the really important work that you're doing. It's going to be a month filled with advocacy and celebration. And we're excited. Here's to a great month. Thank you so much and happy Pride. Happy Pride. Thanks for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, share with your colleagues and friends and subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. And if you're feeling really generous, leave us a five-star rating. Thanks, and I'll see you next time.